I said, uh, we're in part seven of this Superman series. With this Superman series, what I've tried to do is give some idea of what kind of man you would encounter if you came across Jesus casually. If you just, you know, met him at a party or at a bar or at work or at church, like, what kind of guy would he be? And what would you notice about him? What personality traits, right? So we're leaving some of the, like, higher-minded theological, spiritual stuff to the side for a moment. For these eight weeks, we're just talking about his human personality. And so... Uh, six or seven weeks ago when this, I guess seven weeks ago when this series started, I talked about how he was incarnate, and that just means he was a person, a human being. Uh, and then we moved on to his intellect. I said he was an intellectual. We talked about his intensity. Uh, we talked about how he was irreverent. Uh, Jim Nutter talked about how he was inviting. His personality was intentional is what we talked about last week. And we've got two weeks left, guys, two weeks. And I cannot close out this series in good conscience without talking about Jesus and the women in his life. And Jesus and the way he was with women. Because this is so important. So I'm going to talk about his impartiality today. He was impartial with women and men. And then next week we'll close out the series by talking about how Jesus was incomparable. Uh, and then we're done because I'm out of I words at that point. That's all I've got. It's all the I words I know. And so we'll move on after next week. Does that sound good? Uh, we'll do that. So uh, I, uh, like many of you, I watched uh, the Super Bowl uh, a couple weeks ago, um, even though I hate the Patriots. And I knew like two guys on the Falcons. Uh, so I wasn't really into the game as much, but I really... I was in my city, you know, the Super Bowl is here in Houston, and, and the Super Bowl is just something you do when you're a red-blooded American, and it gives you an excuse to eat all this queso and stuff you shouldn't eat, and like, I, I, I like Lady Gaga, you don't have to tell anybody, but I'm a big Gaga fan, you know, I wanted to see her repel from the roof and all that craziness, but I really like the commercials. I love watching Super Bowl ads. I think they're always interesting because they change from year to year. I think it says a little bit about where we're going as a culture. And anyway, uh, there was this one ad that stuck out to me. And as a way of starting today's talk, I just wanted to share this ad with you. It really struck a chord with me more than any other ad. And so uh, check out this commercial from Audi. What do I tell my daughter? Do I tell her that her grandpa's worth more than her grandma? That her dad is worth more than her mom? Do I tell her that despite her education, her drive, her skills, her intelligence, she will automatically be valued as less than every man she ever meets? something different. So uh, some of, some of y'all want to applaud and a, a few of you might not because, listen, uh, there were uh, an, a significant number of people in our culture that were not pleased with this ad. And you could hear them on the news, and you could see them online, and you could, if you read the comments section, which I never recommend in any article whatsoever, but if you read the comments section, you get the full report from, you know, America across the political spectrum about an ad like this. Some people thought that they were pushing an agenda. 
that Audi was pushing a political agenda, you know, um, down the throats of an unsuspecting American populace, right? So this idea that, you know, this equal pay for equal work uh, kind of stuff, that it, it was just pushing feminism, right? And there were people that were saying they're going to boycott Audi and never buy one because of that. I'll never buy one either. It's not because I'm boycotting. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, it's <laughs> another story. Uh, but listen, I, uh, I don't know if it's because I, I have a daughter who I swear to you was a baby yesterday. It was a baby yesterday. And today she's practically leaving for college. You know, she's nine, but God. Um, and I, uh, dang. She wasn't here at 9.40, so this was easier. <clears throat> Think about all that I want for her. You know? And all that I don't want. So when I see a commercial like this, I... I don't see a political agenda being forced down our throats. I see a father who loves his daughter and wants her to have every opportunity that every little boy has. Right? So I, I want to understand and relate to people who are upset. But I got to say I relate even more to uh, the father in this, in this advertisement who just wants his daughter to have a fair shake. And I hope, uh, I hope that I'm at a minimum... We can all agree, at least, that the idea of something like equal pay for equal work is a good idea in theory, right? Now, we can disagree about how we get there as a culture. Like, I understand people right of center. Like, I, you know, I am in agreement with a lot of what people on the right of center think that this should be something the free market works out and we should do whatever we can to encourage that to happen, you know. And companies that treat women fairly should be the ones that, you know, uh, uh, over time beat out the other ones, right? And so it fixes itself. And other people on the left, they think that government should intervene and kind of mandate this sort of a thing. But... We can disagree about that. None of us should be disagreeing about the idea that equal pay for equal work is a good idea and that should happen, right? I'm not here to push that particular agenda. I'm just saying that's common sense, right? If we equally value women and men, something like that shouldn't be a political football in our games on Facebook arguments, right? So we should do uh, better than that. And I think I'm a snotty mess now, but I think uh, we should... Uh, <laughs> anyway, I had a uh, tissue, but y'all are going to have to deal with it. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think we should uh, do a better job of, of uh, knowing exactly uh, what Jesus felt about things like this. And I think Jesus was, by definition, a feminist. By definition. Not what you f see on the news of feminism, necessarily or on college campuses, or all the madness, right? He was by definition a feminist, someone who advocates women's rights on the basis of equality. Jesus was by definition a feminist, and so shouldn't people following Jesus also be? But here's what happens. People that are on the right of center, right? Uh, I know a lot of my friends are, and, and I'm somewhere in that area personally, you know, center, center right. 
politically. And so, like, I understand that people on the right get squirmish and squeamish about uh, feminism um, because of how militant and divisive feminism has seemed in uh, the media, right? But Jesus was a feminist. He was not militant about it. He wasn't even mouthy about it. He never really talked about how good he was for women. He was just good to women and good for women and fair to every woman in front of him, speaking to them just like he spoke to the men in his life. You might say that Jesus was also not just feminist, but he was chivalrous. It's interesting that feminism makes people on the right nervous. Chivalry makes people on the left nervous because when when leftist-minded people, especially a lot of uh, feminist-minded people, when they hear the word chivalry, they think of all the negative connotations of chivalry. They think of a man who lords his power over a woman, who uses his power as an advantage to belittle a woman, right? And, and so they have a point because there is a thin line between chivalry and veiled misogyny. We have to know where that line is. But to know where that line is between chivalry and veiled uh, misogyny, right? Uh, like when a man lords over a woman. Some women, some feminists hear chivalry and they think about this scene from The Sound of Music where Rolf sings to Liesel. You remember the song? Y'all gonna sing with me? 940, 940 didn't sing with me. Totally unprepared are you to face a world of men. Timid and shy and scared are you of things beyond your kin. Here it comes. You need someone. You need someone older and wiser telling you what to do. I am 17. Is that right? Going on 18. Or was he 16? 16 going on 17. Adrian, where are you? Take care of you, right? So that's a really sweet thought, and everybody goes, oh, when he does it, but then the guy turns out to be a Nazi, and he's not so sweet after all. Like he wants to, he wants to shoot your father and take you to a concentration camp. That's what people think of when they think of chivalry sometimes, and that's not what I'm talking about when I say Jesus was chivalrous. At its best, chivalry is one person using his or her strength or power to benefit, bless, or honor someone else who at that moment doesn't have that particular strength or power. Did you hear that? It's not about gender even. It's about one person using a particular strength of power to benefit, bless, or honor someone who in that moment doesn't have that particular strength or power. It is at home. It is me reaching up for the dishes that are high or putting the dishes away that go high or getting heavy things down from, uh, from the attic, you know, for my wife because I'm, I'm taller than she is, right? And it means doing that without talking about how short you are. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, this is chivalry. This is a jerk. You know what I mean? Like, so we're talking about we're talking about doing the right thing without lording over, uh, you know, hiding behind that good thing and just being a jerk. So Christians, we need to understand the difference between chivalry and veiled sexism. We need to understand it for two reasons. First of all, your non-religious friends, and some of you are here today, non-religious people that are skeptics or cynics or agnostics or atheists or feminists. Not that all feminists are uh, non-religious. I didn't mean that how it sounded. But uh, non-religious feminists uh, uh, will often point at the Bible or at doctrine or at preachers or at the church and say, we're the problem. Say there's too much veiled sexism or unveiled in your tradition, in your religion. Secondly, the reason we need to understand uh, the difference is because Jesus understood the difference. 
The definition I have for Jesus and his way with women is that he was a chivalrous feminist. Jesus was a chivalrous feminist. I think it's the best kept secret in the Gospels. How many times women surrounded himself intentionally with women and he understood their capabilities and he empowered them to change the world with him. They weren't silent bystanders there to meet the needs of the men. They were participants, disciples he called them. And he empowered them to do ministry. And many times women ministered to Jesus. In fact, there's no mention of men ministering to Jesus that I can think of. Only women. I think that's significant. In your study guides, I've given you 12 examples of interactions with uh, women, particular interactions with women that Jesus had. We've already discussed Jesus' tight relationship with his mama and how important that relationship was to his formation. Uh, remember the story about water into wine and the look she gave him to instigate, you know, that first miracle. Those of you who were here a few weeks ago. And we know that Mary was there the day Jesus was born and she stroked his hair. And we know that he, she was there the day that he died and probably stroked his hair as he died. And, and all that he cared about when he was on the cross was forgiving his enemies and making sure his mama was taken care of. But Mary wasn't the only woman that he was close to. There were several others. And the examples I've listed on the screen and on your study guides, it's not an exhaustive list. There are more than that. But I just kind of wanted to, to share these with you and to share the fact that almost every time he spent time with a woman, he was breaking the law. And not just the national, federal laws. They didn't have those really. He was breaking the Bible law. He was breaking religious law. By talking to women, by acknowledging them as equals, by letting them touch him, by touching them when he wasn't related. You couldn't do those things. It was illegal. He was risking everything, was risking his legitimacy by humanizing the women around him. But he does it again and again. He doesn't talk down to women. He talks to them like he talks to men, like the Samaritan woman at the well, the story at Jacob's well. Everybody knows this story. Most people do. When this woman had been married four times and now she's sleeping with a man that's not her husband and Jesus just lays it out there. He doesn't tiptoe around it. He convicts her like he would convict a man. He lays it out there, but by the end of that conversation, he's empowered her and emboldened her to be an evangelist. And this Samaritan woman who's been married four times and is living with her fifth is, is empowered to be the evangelist to Samaria. And she goes and converts her whole town. There's still a church that stands by that well that still exists where Jesus met this woman in Samaria, a church that's built in her honor where Arab Christians still gather, those Arab Christians that are left in the Holy Land, still gather to worship because of this woman's good work. Because Jesus empowered her as an evangelist and as a disciple. And you see other stories as well from Mark chapter 5, the bleeding woman who Jesus called daughter when no one else had even acknowledged her for years because of her condition. They were scared to get what she had, an issue of blood, what the Bible says, and no one would go near her. Her family forgot her. She was isolated. She touches Jesus' garment, the hem of his garment, which only a family member was allowed to touch, and she touches it because she's so desperate to have his attention. And instead of ostracizing her further and punishing her and saying, you know, to the men around her, kill this woman, as he could have done, he leans down to whisper to her. And she whispers back. She tells him the whole truth, it says in Mark 5. She tells him the whole truth, her whole story, all of it. And he listens and by the end of that story, not only is Jesus healed her, Jesus calls her daughter. Basically saying, it's all right that you touched the hem of my robe because you're my daughter. We're family. How do you think that sounded to that woman? 
belittling, ostracizing, or condescending? No. Empowering is how it must have sounded. In John chapter 12, there's the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and dried it with her hair, touching him, touching him with her hair, touching him with her hands in front of all these religious dudes. And Jesus himself could have been killed, punished for allowing this to happen. One of my favorite stories about Jesus and women is the women I like to call Jesus' sugar mamas. From Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we see this story that soon afterward Jesus went on. I'm going to skip on a little bit. Uh, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, the wife of Herod's household manager, was in Jesus' entourage, Susanna, and many others, that means other women, who provided for them out of their means. The, the them there is Jesus and his disciples. These women provided for Jesus and his disciples out of their own coffers. These women bankrolled Jesus. They bankrolled him. They were his, y'all say it with me, they were his sugar mamas, man. It's the way it was, and Jesus welcomed it, right? So he empowered them not only to evangelize, but to be in charge of things like finance in his, uh, in his ministry. It was an incredible, shocking thing in his day. It may not seem like that big of a deal now, but when you think about women in context of Jesus' ministry, it was hugely important, hugely radical, I want to talk a little bit about women in the first century, what their lives were like. And this isn't exaggeration. This is just from the history books, right? What women faced day to day in first century in the region where Jesus lived. And so I've got a list of things. These are in your study guides and also uh, on the screens. I've got uh, a list, like things like a woman became, a girl became a woman at the age of 12. Uh, we've got, uh, let's go ahead to the next slide, guys, so we can keep up. There we go. Here we go. Uh, a woman became uh, a woman at the age of 12. Uh, newborn uh, daughters were often left out in the elements uh, to die because uh, remember the stories from China during the one child rule uh, that little girls would be abandoned? Same kind of thing was happening, especially in the peasant class. They would just be disposed of because it was more advantageous to have a boy than a girl. Men could basically do away with their wives. Uh, they had power over the lives of their wives and children, and they could have their wives killed or kill their wives for very little cause or reason at all in the first century without facing much recourse at all. It was believed that all women, because their lack of judgment, should be under the power of male guardians. That's from the Roman historian Cicero. A man could divorce his wife if she cheated on him or if she burnt his dinner, which is interesting. So... Guys, don't get any ideas, and uh, <laughs> girls, uh, y'all don't either, right? So <laughs> uh, I've burned a few dinners in my time. Uh, a wife could rarely divorce her husband, uh, even though a man could divorce his wife or just about anything. Most women had no boys to speak of, and women were often forced to cover their faces. Now, the role of a woman was often just seen as functional and disposable. Women were property, chattel, to be bought, sold, and traded by men in their lives. That's just the way it was in Jesus' time. And religion and philosophy didn't help much either. These are some of the religious and philosophical norms that Jesus stepped into, like Aristotle, who was a few centuries before Jesus, but his teachings laid the foundation for Jesus' society. The male is by nature superior, the female inferior, the one rules, the other is ruled. 
We also know that temple prostitution was common uh, in those days in Roman Empire. Uh, so uh, you'd have a temple where you'd go and worship with your spirit, and then next door you'd have a house of prostitution where you would you know, worship with your body. This was just uh, the way women were used in those days. Uh, the woman is, this is from Josephus, the woman is, according to the law, inferior in all things. That's Josephus, the Jewish historian from the first century, and the law he speaks of is the Hebrew Bible, uh, inferior in all things. That's his interpretation of the Hebrew Bible and not mine, I want to be clear. Uh, rather, uh, should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman, whoever teaches his daughter the Torah is like one who teaches her harlotry. That's from a first century Jewish rabbi that we know of, uh, Eliezer. And uh, this is a daily prayer that many Jewish men prayed in Jesus' time. Praised be God that he has not made me a Gentile. Praised be God that he has not made me a woman. Praised be God that he has not made me a fool. Any man who prayed that prayer in my book <laughs> might be the latter. Anyway, I'll move on. But uh, that's, that's, the, that's, the, so, that's the culture and the religion that Jesus stepped into. And that's what made his treatment of women so dramatically different. And radical. I think that's why so many women gravitated toward his movement. Did you know that the early church was criticized by Roman officials for being a movement of women, children, and slaves? Because so many of the, earth, the first Christians were women, children, and slaves. I think it's because of how different Jesus was with and around women, children, and slaves, right? This was, this was uh, what made his, his ministry so shocking. There's one story, one passage I want to share with you uh, from the Gospel of Luke, a particular story about Jesus and women that I think really spells out for us and illustrates uh, Jesus' thoughts about the place of a woman in the home. It's the story of Mary and Martha uh, from Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. You can turn with me in your Bible if you have one or follow along on the stu study guides or on the screens. I'll just uh, read it now. This is Luke 10, 38 to 42. Uh, let's go back here. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who, had, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he had said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. So you got your Marys and you got your Marthas. And you know which one you are, right? Every one of you does. You got your Marys, you got your Marthas. So the Marthas are the taskmasters. The Marthas are the list makers. The Marthas are the, I don't know how she does it, ladies. Like the Marthas are the ones that make the world go round. The Marys are the dreamers. The Marys are more like the creatives and the Marys are the procrastinators. You know, oh, I just want to know, how many Marthas do we have in the, in the house today? Marthas, let me hear you. All right, so listen, you don't have to be, I don't see one male, male hand up. You don't have to be a woman to be a Martha. If you're a taskmaster, a list maker, I don't know how he does it guy, <laughs> then that's you. You're a Martha, right? So, uh, so I've, I'm not a Martha. I'm married to a Martha. 
And I thank God every day that I'm married to a Martha. And I sympathize with Marthas. I sympathize with this Martha because it's not fair when you're Martha and you're surrounded by a bunch of Marys. I know it's not fair. I know all the Marthas in the room right now are thinking it's not fair. And even Jesus is wrong. Because nobody understands what it's like to be Martha when there's just Marys, right? So I, I, I empathize. I don't empathize. That means I know what it's like. I sympathize with Martha's. So uh, especially in this story, because Jesus, it says, is coming with his disciples. He's on his way, right? So, and that's at least 13 grown men that are coming to your house if you're Martha. But it's probably a bigger group than that. It's probably like 50 dudes considering all of the entourage. We know that a lot of people followed Jesus around, and Jesus' disciples weren't limited to the 12. There was a, probably an entourage that followed. And so 50 people coming over to your house, and you're expected socially. The unwritten rules were that you would have a clean house. You'd have food on the table for everyone, and you'd have enough water and or wine for everybody to drink. And Jesus is coming with no notice whatsoever. Which I know we say Jesus was without sin, but this is close, man. This is as close as he got, in my opinion, to being a sinner. Because this is a faux pas, man. You don't do this to a Martha. You don't say I'm coming over with 50 guys now and expect a Martha to be okay. And so, you know, there was no uh, blue apron. There was no favor app. Martha's just freaking out. And she's got to go to the grocery store. She takes her two-hump camel with her to the grocery store, which is like a minivan, you know, like that's how I picture Martha driving a minivan camel or something. I don't know why. But I picture her at the grocery store, like running through the aisles and hating everyone she sees. And she comes home, and she's got to get the groceries in by herself. And she starts unpacking the groceries, starts making dinner. And she, at this point, Martha doesn't even want anyone to help her because she's enjoying justifying her anger by looking out of the living room and seeing no one move a muscle to help her. You know, like it kind of feeds into this frame of mind that she's in. And at one point, she just kind of explodes and she says, Jesus, look at Mary. The story says Mary was sitting there at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach. That was not a woman's place. That at the feet of the most important teacher the world has ever known, a Jewish rabbi, the Messiah, a woman sitting down when food's not on the table, that was not a woman's place. And so here's the thing. When Jesus responds to Martha's request, Martha's like, tell her to get off her lazy behind and help me with dinner. He's not just responding to Martha, I don't think. I don't think he's just correcting Martha because I think half the men in the room probably agreed with Martha. I think half the men in the room who were hungry, they probably wanted Martha, Mary to get up too and get food on the table a little quicker because we're hungry here. And what is she doing here with us? And so Jesus isn't just correcting Martha. Jesus is convicting the men in the room and helping them to see that Mary's place is indeed at his feet because she's a daughter of God, just like they're sons of God. And there is no distinction here. And she has chosen the better part. So as sympathetic as I am to Martha, I think Jesus' intentions here were more than to just teach Martha a lesson. I think he was saying something to the men in the room then, and I think he's saying the same thing to the men and the women in the room today. But Mary chose the better part. It won't be denied her. Now, Jesus was chivalrous without being patronizing he was a feminist, but he never made it his pet cause du jour. 
and he never bragged about how good he was toward women. He just treated every woman he met like a fully human being. There's an author named Dorothy Sayers uh, who was herself a humanist as she was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and she wrote this. She was taken with Jesus' treatment of women. She said, perhaps it is no wonder that the women were at the uh, cradle, first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this. They never, there never has been another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, never treated them either as the woman, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without uh, querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. So I said before, non-religious people especially, skeptics, agnostics, and some feminists tend to see religion in groups like this. That's perfect. <laughs> I didn't cue that, I promise. That was not part of the thing. But we should pay attention. Uh, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that by and large, people that criticize religion for being a tool of oppression against women over the years, historically, by and large, they're right. More often than not, religion has been used that way. That's because that's the way religions work. Religions are intended to keep people in their place, and historically, that's been especially true for women. To keep women in their place, that's just what religions do, not just the Christian religion. Religions keep people in their place and control people, and, and, and uh, that is what um, religion has meant for women. For women, that has meant that you are required, women, to experience God, whichever God you're experiencing, through the limited lens of your experience as a woman, the limited lens of your identity as a virtuous daughter, a dutiful wife, or a caring mother. And if you don't have that holy trifecta completed, then you're not complete in the eyes of God yet. You don't have a full audience with God yet. Meanwhile, those same religious systems will say to a man that you have full audience with God, you are complete, men, whether or not you have completed your role as a, uh, you know, uh, uh, as a responsible son, virtuous son, a dutiful husband, and a caring father. And there is, within religious systems, there always has been this inequity. But here's what we need to understand as Christians is that Jesus never intended to begin a religion. Jesus himself, as we already talked about in this series, was himself a pretty irreligious guy. The Christian movement has always been an irreligious movement because you can't reconcile gospel with religion. And every time in history, Christianity has given way to something toxic. All the worst moments in the history of the church have all been when religion, human religion, have, has infiltrated the church and poisoned us. And then in turn, the reason the church is still here today is that in turn, courageous men and women stood up to reform the church and make it all about Christ again and Christ alone. And wherever Christ has gone for the last 2,000 years, wherever Christ has gone, the role and status of women has been elevated and not cheapened. The role and status of women has not been diminished wherever Christ is going today. 
even in continents like sub-Saharan Africa, where the role and status of women and girls continues to rise, and Christians across the continent are educating young girls like they've never been educated before, equal to boys. The same has happened in South America. The same is happening now in China under the radar, but it's happening. Because wherever Christ goes, women and men, girls and boys, are elevated to the status of children of God. Sometimes it happens by the free market. Sometimes it happens by acts of government. Every time it happens through the spirit of Christ. The same spirit that emboldened the apostle Paul, that Pharisee, the one that people call a sexist religious guy. He wrote these dramatic words in Galatians 3. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female for all are one in Christ Jesus. Now what in the world is Paul talking about? In the first century you could get killed for this. Is he saying that men shouldn't be men anymore? Or women shouldn't be women? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is your ethnicity and your social status and your gender have no cash value in the kingdom of God. They don't get you a leg up or a leg down in any direction or the other in the kingdom of God because we are all one in Christ. Because Jesus, being the chivalrous feminist that he is, used his power and his strength to carry a burden that none of us were powerful or strong enough to bear on our own. And he did it for each and every one of us individually, for men and women, for girls and for boys, all the same. And what this means, what this means, I think the best part is, for my daughter and your daughters, for every girl and every woman here today, the best part is that your relationship to God, your worth in the eyes of the Almighty has nothing to do with your relationships to men. No matter how good or how bad or how troubling they've been or how non-existent maybe they've been, it has nothing to do with your worth. Whether you're single or married or divorced or dating or whether you're a child or a teenager or, or an adult. The only thing that matters is Jesus who looks at all his daughters with the same eyes he looks at all his sons with. And he invites all to cast their cares aside and come sit at his feet. It will not be taken from them. Girls, it's Children's Church Sabbath. We got young girls here today. Teenagers, students, young women, singles and mothers, marrieds, and divorced women. I need you to hear Jesus saying today that there is nothing standing in your way. Nothing standing in your way from a full audience with God. You need no man like me or any other man to be your intermediary. Jesus is the only man you needed for that, and we all needed him, not just women. Jesus is our intermediary and the only one that we need. No man can validate you more than Jesus already has. Men and boys, young and old, if our way with women, if our view of women, if our thoughts about women are anything less then the chivalrous, feminist way of Jesus, let us repent. Let us confess we've been wrong. And let
let us follow in the footsteps, hand in hand with our sisters in Christ, to the feet of Jesus. That will not be taken away from us. Let's pray together.